0: I'm going to speak in this afternoon Bible study about animals, and I've titled our study A Biblical View of Animals. Now, this is not limited to animals that are just mentioned in the Bible, specific species. This is about all animals, animals in general. The Bible has much to say about animals. I'm going to focus, as a result of my studies, not so much on the types of animals, because we could talk about that all day long, and that would be a fun subject. But I'm going to talk more as to the purpose for animals, the function of animals, and the interconnectivity between animals and mankind. And it is a fascinating topic indeed. So I trust you'll keep an open mind, because some of the things you have to have an open mind about. (laughs) And I think you'll be blessed, at least challenged, to think about things a little bit more thoroughly with respect to animals and the biblical view. Now, seeing that we're coming up on the Christmas season, I remind you that at least some animals are mentioned alongside the Christmas story. Well, I should say at least sheep are mentioned. There could have been others. The Bible doesn't say even though our Christmas carols include a bunch of critters, some of the hymns like Away in a Manger mention the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, and oh, some of the other Christmas carols, I didn't write them all down for this study, but there are just numerous references to animals, and if you believe the little drummer boy story, I mean, you're going you're gonna to see a lot of animals <laughs> at the manger scene. But the Bible only mentions, to the best of my knowledge, sheep. The shepherds were watching over their flocks when the angel of the Lord came to them and made the announcement of Christ's birth. And of course, they the shepherds went to visit the newborn babe. I don't think they brought any sheep with them, but it's possible. We do know from our studies of the manger scene and where Christ was born that it was more likely a place called Migdal Eder, which is the Hebrew term that that likely would have been the place where Jesus was born, which was a place for caring for sheep and birthing sheep, but probably would have been quiet and silent at the time of year that Jesus was born. But we'll not get into that in this particular study. The point I want to make here is that even animals are mentioned in the Christmas account, the sheep, the shepherds. Let's draw our attention back to Genesis chapter 1. We know that God created every living thing, and we believe that he created all of the animals. Now, he probably did not create all of the species as we know them today, but he created many different kinds, and they, over time, new species have developed. I won't get into how that happens. I trust most of you already know. But in Genesis 1.31, we're told that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. I hope someday when we're with the Lord, we can get some instant replays. (laughs) It must have been magnificent to see God creating the world and then sitting back and pronouncing it good. I think we would say, Amen, 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 it's good, it's really good. You did a great job, Lord, and we know that even from today. Everything was beautiful. Everything was pristine. Until something ruined it. And what was it that ruined it? Well, the fall of man. Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden had a domino effect on creation, and this includes the animals. Notice the questions that God asks Adam Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? What is this that you have done? Oh boy, his sin brought death into the world and a ruined creation, as we're going to see. Yes, it will one day be restored. That is the creation. But for now, it's impaired. It's ruined in many respects. And that includes the animal kingdom. We're going to look at the effects of the curse, man's fall resulting in God's curse upon mankind, upon the earth. We're going to look at the effects of that on the animal kingdom. And then, just to give you a sneak preview, I want you to think real quickly, fast forward in your minds to the end of time when creation is restored. What effect will that have on the animal kingdom? Hmm. But a principle right up front that I want to mention because we're going to refer to it Repeatedly in our study today, I have come to the conclusion from my biblical study of animals that the fate of animals is closely connected to man's fate. Now, by fate, I'm not using that in a mythology sense. Fate was one of the gods. But what I mean is what happens to animals in the end is closely connected to what happens to man in the end. That's what I'm talking about. And that's a principle we need to think about up front. Now, I have resolved that that is a true premise. You might have to think it through before you can arrive at that conclusion. That's fine. But I hope to demonstrate for you in the course of the study today that that is a true statement. Let's go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 20. We read there, For the creation was subjected to futility, Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. When was the creation subjected to futility? Well, at the fall, of course. But let's emphasize another phrase in this verse, not was subjected. Let's emphasize to futility. The creation was subjected to futility. What does that mean? Well, futility means, in the King James, the word is vanity. But it also means inutility, not able to be used correctly, purposelessness, frustration. So Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was subjected to purposelessness, frustration, inutility. That's what the word means. Now think about this. Creation was created perfect, including the animal kingdom. Animals were created for a specific purpose be a blessing to man, to be a help to man, and so on. But then man sinned. Think it through. The animals did not sin. Man sinned. And as a result, animals which are connected, their fate is connected to the fate of man. The animals, therefore, were subjected to futility, purposelessness, and frustration, not because of anything they had done, but because of what man had done. That makes us wonder what the animal kingdom once was, And what it will one day become. For I think it's far greater than what we see in the world today. And we're going to find in our study that it's magnificent. What it once was and what it will become. If I'm correct in my premises, we'll see. Romans 8.20, let's emphasize another phrase. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. That is, not voluntarily. Animals did not choose it. The created order had no choice. Man made a choice and it affected everything. It affected the plants. It affected the animals. It affected the earth, per se. It affected everything. So animals didn't choose their fate. (laughs) And then let's emphasize another phrase. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So here's the positive side of the story. God subjected creation under a curse, but he did so in hope for one day the curse will be reversed. As we're going to see this afternoon, not only did the curse affect the animal kingdom profoundly, but the reversal of the curse will affect the animal kingdom profoundly too. Do you ever think about that? I mean, connect the dots. If the curse affected animals profoundly, then the reversal of the curse is going to affect them profoundly too. I mean, you think that's rude. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the consequences of the curse. Well, consequence number one, when man fell, all creation was cursed, including the animal kingdom. And what are the consequences of man's fall, then, on the animal kingdom? Well, we can start with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. The serpent was cursed above and beyond the rest of the animal kingdom, but the animal kingdom was most certainly cursed as well. So the implication is the entire animal kingdom was affected by man's sin. Now there's a second consequence of the fall, and that's death. Sorry to be gruesome, but it's a fact of life that we have death in our world, in many forms. Death of animals, death of humans, of course. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And who's the one man here mentioned in this verse? Adam. So because of Adam's sin, death entered the world, and death spread to all men because, well, all have sinned. There was no death before the fall, and I believe that includes animals. Now, you all enjoyed, excuse the usage of this word but you all enjoyed a little death on your thanksgiving table i think (laughs) and i'm referring to a roasted turkey (laughs) or ham or whatever you have as a result of the fall we eat meat in fact it was after the flood that god told noah that animals could be killed and eaten and meat is delicious but we have no idea of the quality of food before the fall in the garden adam might say to us one day you americans thought you had delicious food or you europeans or oriental cultures and there are some great foods i've tasted around the world but it's nothing like what we had in the garden that was delicious <laughs> i can hear adam saying that it not only sustained their life it was delicious and undoubtedly far greater than the meat that we enjoy today because the meat is the result of the curse One day, I believe, in the Millennial Kingdom, mankind will be vegetarian once again. In fact, I think that will continue starting with the Millennial Kingdom and going on ad infinitum. But until that day, we eat meat. And by the way, and I want you to really take this seriously, whenever you eat a meal that involves meat, you should appreciate the fact that an animal gave its life so that you could eat your meal. Now, you don't have to be spooky about that, you know, and and rush to vegetarianism we'll see why you don't need to do that in just a moment but the point is that that animal gave its life for you to have a nice meal and you should just be thankful grateful that God allowed this for me to be able to eat and all of this is the result of the fall as I said animals were affected too now let's extend that into another consequence of the fall God's requirement that Israel offer lambs as sacrifices to atone for man's sins. In fact, the Old Testament sacrificial system was the result of the fall. And we could extend that all the way to Jesus. His sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, is a result of man's fall. It needed to happen to redeem mankind from sin and Satan. And by the way, Jesus was sacrificed as the Passover lamb on Passover. That's an interesting study in itself. Let's go to consequence number three of the fall. Genesis 1 verse 30 says, To every beast of the earth I have given every green herb for food. So consequence number three, man and animals, I believe, were created vegetarian but became carnivorous. Genesis 9 verse 3 says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Hmm. Carnivores will be vegetarian again. Isaiah 11 and verse 6 refers to the wolf dwelling with the lamb. This is millennial. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And I love the image of the lion and the lamb how beautiful that is and how peaceful a scene reflecting what the millennial reign will be like the conditions of that era now I'm going to provoke you a little bit with this next consequence and I'm putting a question mark at the end of it because we're not 100% sure but I tend to think that the speech of animals was possibly revoked at the time of the fall now, granted, there's some speculation here, but I tend to think that animals had some rudimentary form of communication. It may not have been as sophisticated as man's, but some means of communicating with mankind. And we have some evidences in the scriptures that animals can speak when God allows them to. You remember in Numbers 22:28. 28, We're told, then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Remember, Balaam was being stubborn and resisting the will of the Lord and going a certain way that he wasn't supposed to go and the angel of the Lord appeared. Now Balaam didn't see it, but the donkey did. And that's an interesting thought. The donkey saw the angel. Balaam did not. Hmm. And Balaam beat the donkey, which he should not have done, but He did and the donkey spoke. God opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Did you notice that the donkey spoke to Balaam, and he talked right back to the donkey, as if it were natural. But Balaam's donkey speaks. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Now, the word open means loosed. Perhaps animals were created with the ability to speak, but lost the ability when the creation was cursed. God sealed up their communication ability. It seems that the donkey did have some abilities, animals in general. But in this case, God loosed the mouth of the donkey. And as I said before, it's also interesting to note that the donkey saw the angel. Hmm. And then, of course, in Genesis, the serpent speaks to Eve. Genesis 3, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, Eve was not surprised to hear the serpent speak. For the serpent to speak to Eve, and for Eve to not be shocked by that, makes you wonder if animals perhaps did communicate in some way. And then I remind you in the future, and this is rather interesting, Revelation 5 and verse 13 refers to all creation speaking. Revelation five thirteen says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Every creature. 19th century scholar G.H. Pember said, Quote, If animals were given to Adam as vassals or subjects, it is but reasonable to conclude that so long as he remained in a state of innocence and retained his sovereignty, there would be a means of intelligent communication between himself and his willing subjects. End quote. Hmm, that makes a lot of sense. And then we hop to the 21st century, the writer Randy Alcorn, you've heard of his book called Heaven, which is a very interesting book. He says, and I quote, In a universe teeming with God's creativity, should talking animals surprise us? If people will be smarter and more capable on the new earth, should it surprise us that animals might also be smarter and more capable? End quote. Hmm. Something to think about. Two scholars, 19th century, 21st century. Now we do have at least one reference in addition to what I've already given you. In Job chapter 39 and verse 17, God tells us in Job 39, he's talking to Job, he tells Job about the ostrich. And in Job 39, 17, we're told God deprived her of wisdom. The word deprived means made to forget. The ostrich was created with wisdom, but was made to forget it. In other words, the ostrich was given some sort of special kind of wisdom, whatever that means, but God took away that ability, made the ostrich forget it, presumably as a result of the fall. So the question I have is, will that ability return after the curse is lifted and creation is restored? Based on the foundation that I have laid thus far, let's take this a bit further. Let's rehearse in our minds the six realms of God's creation. And these are all mentioned in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. First, the fish. And then, of course, birds. And we have so many varieties of fish and birds. It's magnificent. And then cattle, which would be more domesticated animals. Beasts, which would be non-domesticated animals, like you wouldn't have tigers plowing your fields in front of your plow, right? That would work too well. <laughs> but you might have an ox or a bull, some type of cattle. And then the creepy crawlers, creepers. And then finally, man himself, which I would not call an animal. I do not call man a mammal. I say man is in a class by himself, we may share some characteristics that mammals have, but I'm not a mammal. Don't believe that evolutionary lie. You're a human. So there are six realms that God created. When he created the world, he created fish, and birds, and cattle, and beasts, and creeping things, and man, and God mentions all of those six in Genesis 1 and 2. Let me read for you from Genesis 2, 19, where we find all of those, or at least... We find some of those, and I'll tell you why it's only some. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. Now, we know that Adam later names his wife Eve, But notice that of the six realms of God's creation that we reviewed a moment ago, Adam only names the creatures from four of them, if you include mankind. There are two that he doesn't name. Did you catch that? So which ones were named by Adam? Well, let's take away the ones that were not. Fish, not named by Adam. And what's the other one? The creepy crawlers. So Adam does not name the fish or the creeping things. He does name, God specifically tells us in the verse I just read, in Genesis 2 verse 19, that Adam names the birds, he names the cattle, he names the beasts, and he names his wife, so mankind. But he does not name fish or creepers. Now you say, well, why would he exclude the fish and the creeping things? you'll have to arrive at some of your own conclusions but one suggestion is maybe they're included with the other realms in god's way of thinking eh, i don't like that answer too much more likely as a possibility is that there are no fish mentioned here because in the new earth there will be no more sea revelation 21 1 hmm and what about creeping things? Well, perhaps no creeping things were named because sin entered into the world through the chief of creepy crawlers, <laughs> a serpent. Now, I don't know. I'm being a bit speculative here. But you've got to answer that for yourself. Why did Adam not name fish and creeping things? We don't know for sure, but here are two possibilities that I've given you. Of course, after the fall, Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. That was a tragedy. But you know, I find it interesting that in Genesis 3 and verse 24, it says, So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, hold that thought. We're going to talk about cherubim for just a moment. Can you picture in your mind what you think a cherub might look like? This is what most people think. When you mention cherubim, they think all oh, those cute little childlike angelic creatures painted by those Renaissance painters somewhere in the Vatican, one of their chapels or whatever, Raphael, Michelangelo. And that's shaped our impression of cherubim. I remember when our three youngest daughters were little, Anna, Beth, and Sarah, we had some people in our church who referred to them as the cherubs. <laughs> <laughs> I said, if you knew the real description of a cherub, you would not call him that. Uh, Not to mention the little horns that those three daughters had. (laughs) No, they're angelic to their daddy. Did you know, I know you folks do, because you've been taught on this, but cherubim are not angels per se. They are a separate class of supernatural beings known as, quote, living creatures, unquote. Ezekiel 10 verse 15 says, and the cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw. Revelation 15 and verse 7 distinguishes between angels and cherubim. Now I'm going to give you a rather detailed description of cherubim from Ezekiel chapter 1. And I'm doing this for a purpose because I'm going somewhere with this. I won't tell you where just right now, but this is what their appearance was like. And I'm using phrases right out of Ezekiel chapter 1. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces. You say, well, that's odd. They're obviously hyperdimensional beings, something that we cannot visualize in our three-dimensional world, but they live in a hyperdimensional, multidimensional world. You know, we have troubles drawing a tesseract today, which is like a hypercube. Imagine trying to draw what Ezekiel saw, a four-faced being. He gave the best description he could give. Each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, unlike our legs that go straight down, but then our feet come out perpendicular to our legs at the bottom. Well, their legs were straight. They didn't have perpendicular feet. In fact, the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. And they sparkled like polished bronze. Now, if you ever see one of these creatures... Keep it to yourself. (laughs) No one's going to believe you. (laughs) It goes on to say, The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides. Their wings touched one another. Each had the face of a man, each of the four had the face of a lion, each of the four had the face of an ox, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Now remember, keep, keep telling yourself this is a multidimensional being. Ezekiel's having a hard time describing it in three-dimensional terms. It goes on to say, They were like burning coals of fire and like the appearance of torches. Woo, it's getting really remarkable the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. (laughs) When they moved, they went toward any one of four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. Hmm. And by the way, I'm not going to talk about this, except I'll just mention a sentence here. This is the same text where you find the wheel in a wheel, which in my mind signifies some kind of gyroscope, like they have in airplanes. I don't know. Undoubtedly very difficult for us to comprehend, but keep in mind, multidimensional beings that Ezekiel's trying to describe for us. And then he goes on in chapter 10 to add a few more things. Their appearance, they're full of eyes all around. It seems that they can see then from every possible angle, front, back, sides. It's my understanding that in a multidimensional world, four five dimensions plus, You not only can see the front of a person, like I can look at Grover right now, and I can see the front of him, but in a hyper-dimensional world, I can see the front, the back, every side of Grover, including his insides, all at the same time. Now, that's mind-blowing, but that's the difference between our dimension and higher dimensions. Now let's go to John's vision of cherubim in Revelation 4, verses 6 through 8. He says, In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle, each having six wings. Now I'm going to show you a couple of artists renderings of cherubim. And you can go on Google and you can see a whole bunch more. I think I'm going to just show you a couple here. But keep in mind, this is just what an artist would imagine. How do you paint a multi-dimensional being? Again, we have trouble drawing a tesseract, which is, what, four-dimensional? A hypercube? How do we draw cherubim? Well, artists have come up with some things and they're really creepy looking. Maybe a better word is terrifying and I don't think that these artist renderings really even begin to do justice I think it's just to help us imagine a little bit hold all of this in the back of your mind about cherubim we're going to go somewhere with it in just a moment but I want to remind you again of the realms of the animal kingdom that were named by Adam fowl or birds cattle, beasts and mankind he did not name the fish or the creeping things. So let's take them out on our graphic here behind me. Let's take out the fish. Let's take out the creeping things. And let's put this in a little bit of order here. Now, on the next slide, I'm going to insert the specific living creatures, the, the faces mentioned in the cherubim, in each of the categories where they belong. For fowl, you have an eagle. For cattle, you have an ox. For beasts, you have a lion. And for man, of course, you have man. Hmm. These are the four faces of the living creatures in Ezekiel and Revelation. We could say these are the four faces of the cherubim, including the cherubim that stood at the east of the Garden of Eden. There's something important we need to notice about Genesis 3.24. Remember, the cherubim were put outside the garden and a flaming sword. Notice, it was the flaming sword, according to Genesis 3.24, that guarded the tree of life. It was not the cherubim. That's what the Bible specifically says, Genesis 3.24, the flaming sword guarded the Garden of Eden. Why were the cherubim there? Now, I cannot be dogmatic about this, but I believe it was to provide hope to Adam think it through. Cherubim are representative beings. They represent the birds, the cattle, the beasts, and man. I find it instructive that the Garden of Eden was not destroyed, but preserved. And cherubim were posted there. In fact, I believe that by using cherubim, God was conveying to Adam his preservation of man and these three realms of creation that Adam had named. Birds, cattle, beasts of the field. And they would endure continually, not just man, but animals also would endure continually into the coming kingdom of Messiah, and then even further into the new heavens and the new earth where we will once again find the tree of life. Hmm. Thus the fate of man and animals is tied together. They're inseparable from God's perspective. Though Adam was thrust out of the garden, he could see in the cherubim posted there a promise of future restoration of man and animals. Interesting. Do we have any further indication in Scripture of this future restoration? Well, let's think about God's covenant to Noah. You remember at the ark when they landed and came out of the ark? In Genesis 9, 9 and 10, God said, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. So there's the four categories that Adam named in the garden and the four categories represented by the cherubim that were posted outside the Garden of Eden. Interesting. And then God said to Noah, Of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Now I want to read this verse a little differently for you. Behold, I established my covenant with you, man, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the eagle in the cherubim, the cattle, the ox in the cherubim, and every beast, the lion in the cherubim, of the earth with, with you, of all that go out of the ark. The sign of the covenant is the rainbow. That's the Noahic covenant we're talking about. And we see rainbows connected with cherubim in Genesis 9, Ezekiel 1, Revelation 4, In all those texts. Interesting. Remarkably, whenever the four living creatures are mentioned, it's always with a rainbow. God's promise is sure. And his promise is both to man and animals. Let's talk about the Ark of the Covenant for just a moment. What was on top of it? What was the top of the Ark of the Covenant called? It was called the mercy seat. And what was molded into that top which was made of solid gold to cherubim not angels most of the pictures we see are angelic beings but that's not really correct the bible specifically mentions cherubim now why were cherubim on the ark the cherubim on the mercy seat represent those that shall be delivered from sin and corruption and be empowered to dwell in the light of god's presence through the atoning sacrifice of the lord jesus That quote came from G.H. Pember. Huh, well that's something to ponder. Remember what I said earlier? The fate of animals is closely connected to man's fate. Why are cherubim on the ark? Well, remember, cherubim represent both man and animals. Animals will be redeemed with man. Indeed, the four living creatures sing praise to God for redemption. Now, I fully realize there's a big difference between man and animals. Okay, I get that. But remember, the fate of animals is tied to the fate of man. When man sinned and was cursed, so was the animal kingdom. When Adam is restored, all creation will be restored, including the animal kingdom. So the ultimate redemption of mankind also results in the ultimate redemption of the animal kingdom. It just makes sense when you put all this together. Romans 8.21 says, Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The creation itself. That includes everything. The animal kingdom will be redeemed when man is redeemed. Now, not in the same way as we'll see, but redeemed nonetheless. And to that I say glorious redemption. Romans 8.22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And that most certainly includes animals. They are one of the most predominant aspects of the created order. The whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. Does God care about animals? Oh my, yes. I call your attention back to the ark. Genesis 8.1 says, God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. If God didn't care about animals, he would let them all die in the flood. That speaks volumes about God's care for animals. He cares for them, and he has a long-term plan for animals along with man. Remember on the ark that God spared eight humans, Noah and his family, and at least one pair from each family in the animal kingdom. Now granted, of the clean animals, he spared more, but at least one pair of all the animals, of each family of animals in the animal kingdom, were included on the ark. Again, that speaks volumes about God's care for animals. God commanded that man and animals rest on the Sabbath. That's very explicit in the Old Testament. On the seventh day, you take a day of rest, and that includes your animals. God had pity on Nineveh because of the, remember at the end of the book, the 120,000 that can't tell their left hand from their right? Some commentators have unwisely, I think, said that the Ninevites must have been barbarians. They couldn't tell between their left hand and their right. Well, that just tells me those commentators knew nothing of the Ninevite culture. It was a highly sophisticated culture. They had quite a library that has been excavated with an incredible amount of volumes. They were a sophisticated culture. No, the 120,000 who can't tell their left hand from their right are children, infants, toddlers. Can little kids tell between left hand and right? No, not until they reach a certain age and can start to think through those things. But the Bible says God had pity on Nineveh because of those little children and also much cattle. God cared about the animals. We also read in the New Testament, Luke 12 and verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God? And in Matthew's Gospel, we read that when a sparrow falls to the ground, God knows it, cares about it. Psalm 104, verse 21, the young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. Job 38.41, who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God? God cares about the animal kingdom. Now, somebody could raise some objections to what I've presented so far. Somebody might say, well, Pastor Hollinsworth, animals merely perish. They just die and that's it. And they might quote Psalm 49.20, A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. And the word perish here is a specific Hebrew word that means reduced to silence. Thus the correct interpretation of this verse is a man without understanding is like a dumb beast that is unable to say anything worthwhile. Ah, that makes more sense. God isn't saying that the beast just die and that's it. What he's saying is, If you don't have understanding, you're like a beast in the sense that you can't say anything worthwhile. You're reduced to silence. A second objection. Somebody might say, well, animals are just annihilated. And they use the verse Ecclesiastes 3.21. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men that goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth? The correct interpretation taken in context, the verse simply means that man is no different from beasts. We all die. The Bible Knowledge Commentary weighs in on this particular verse. It says both people and animals come from the same dust of the earth, are animated by the same life breath, and go to the same place. That is, they return to dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20 So Solomon argued that man has no advantage over an animal for both are transitory. Okay, that puts the verse in its proper perspective. Did you know that animals have a soul? The Hebrew word nephesh. Soul is used repeatedly of both man and animals. However, animals are not created in the image of God, so their soul is non-human, we understand that. Nevertheless, they are formed from the ground as man, and they possess the breath of life as man. Man is God's primary creation, but animals are secondary and subordinate. Animals, therefore, are of huge importance in God's creation. What is the purpose of animals? Do animals exist merely for our pleasure? Do they then fade away into nothingness? What is the purpose of animals? Do they have a future with man? Are they for our instruction here and now? Well, remember the principle I've stated all the way through, the fate of animals is closely connected to man's fate. So I'm going to suggest to you tonight that animals are for our learning. They teach us lessons in character. We're told in the scriptures to be industrious like the ant. Be bold like the spider. Be cooperative like the locusts. Be resourceful like the conies, which are like rock badgers. Proverbs 30. They also teach us lessons in sensitivity. Balaam should have paid attention to the reservations of his donkey. Proverbs 12 and verse 10 says, A righteous man regards the life of his animals. I think we should learn lessons in character and sensitivity from the animal kingdom. Now, I don't mean things spooky like, Ooh, I want to hear what this animal has to say to me or anything like that. (laughs) But just learn from their traits and sensitivities sometimes of animals. Maybe we can pick up on things. In fact, we should not be cruel to animals. We should not kill animals unless it's for food or clothing. And nowadays, with the abundance of fabrics available, is it really necessary to kill animals for clothing? I used to be a little more liberal in my mindset with respect to animals. Now, forgive me if you're a cat lover, but I used to say cats are good for target practice. Now, I don't say that anymore. I've been converted when it comes to animals. I still wonder why God created cats. (laughs) To me, they don't serve any earthly purpose. But anyway, aside from that, there you go. Aside from that, I would say that we need to treat animals correctly and not kill them unless we need it for food or unless they're a predator, obviously. The point of all this, and we're coming down to the end here, we're very close, animals have a future. God cares for animals now. He's made promises regarding their future, Genesis chapter 9. Animals will participate with man in the millennium and the new earth, and we have references of scripture in Isaiah 11 and chapter 65 to demonstrate that. And animals will be redeemed from the curse and will sing praise to God with all creation, Romans 8 and Revelation 4 and 5 so in closing here this afternoon let's play a little if then if the fate of animals is tied to man's fate that's a premise i gave you that i said i believe is correct you have to decide if it is or not based on what i've shared with you if the fate of animals is tied to man's fate and if animals were cursed because of man's fall then through man's redemption animals will also be redeemed and the curse lifted then when man is resurrected, animals may also be resurrected or at least restored or recreated. And some scholars have suggested maybe even extinct species. Now that's speculative. But how far does this go? You have to think this through. It's a possibility because there are a whole lot of animals in the realm to come. And if animals are not resurrected or recreated as humans are, then you're going to have an abundance of human population and a fraction of animal population. Think it through. And here's another then. Then animals will be abundant in the new earth, and like man, they will be smarter. And then animals will sing praise to the Creator. Now, I would also add that perhaps... And this is speculative too, but perhaps animals will have the ability to talk or communicate somehow in a more intelligent way with man in the future. We don't know for sure, but I do believe that's a very real possibility. What is our relationship to animals, or what should it be? Well, we should learn to enjoy and appreciate animals with whom we will enjoy companionship in the ages to come. If this is true, and it is, how much more so with people? What a tragedy that many people, including Christians, treat their pets better than they do other people. That's a tragedy. We should learn aspects of character from their behavior. We should learn to treat animals as God's special creation that possess souls. Now, they're non human souls, not made in the image of God, but they're souls nonetheless. And finally, we should maintain a stewardship relationship with animals in our care of them. Take care of your animals and respect the animals that God has put on earth, but do not conclude from this that we are to become vegetarian. God has given us animals in part for a food source in this present age. And the Apostle Paul said, All creatures of God are good and nothing to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving when I was in Cambodia I'll close with this I saw street side vendors that had great big round bowls full of three inch long cockroaches I kid you not they would buy these and eat these crickets frogs and tarantulas I kid you not they would eat these things in fact, when we sat down to lunch one day, I'm eating some Cambodian food that we got in a restaurant, and the national missionary guys that we were traveling with at the time, they had purchased a sack of crickets and they were eating them crunch 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 one by one just like potato chips here in the states. That's not for me. But no, like Jay's potato chip, you know, can't stop eating them. They ate the whole bag, but it's lawful. Paul said so. Here's the point of the whole study tonight. We should praise God for the animal kingdom. And I do believe God has a big plan for them in the future, just based on what we've seen in the past and what we can see of animals in the future kingdom. And with that, I'm officially done.